This Road to Recovery segment is sponsored by Wells Fargo. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Julie Hyman. This is what food insecurity in America looks like. It's one of the more enduring images of the coronavirus pandemic and subsequent recession. Miles long lines of cars at food banks across the country. Joining us now is Claire Babineau-Fontenot, the CEO of Feeding America, which is one of the l largest nationwide nonprofits feeding the hungry, and Tom Vilsack, the CEO of the Dairy Export Council, also former Agriculture Secretary. Thank you both for joining us. Um, Claire, I, I want to start with you to sort of set the scene, if you will, because food insecurity or people who don't know where their next meal is coming from or have trouble paying for food. This was already a problem going into this pandemic, and it has only made things worse. What do the numbers look like right now? Yeah, so thank you so much for asking that question, and thank you for, for inviting Feeding America to this really important conversation. So before the pandemic, there were approximately 37 million people in this country who did not have consistent, predictable access to a mix of food upon which you can base a healthy lifestyle. Uh, so food insecurity in the country has been a big challenge for a very long time. Unfortunately, we're seeing those numbers really rise. And so far, based upon the estimates that we have, it appears that we're actually going to see food insecurity rates as a result of this pandemic go even higher than they were in the last Great Depression, which was at that time unprecedented. So we're anticipating that the rate of food insecurity will go up to about 54 million people, and that right at 20 million of people who are facing food insecurity in this country will be kids. Governor Vilsack, what are some of the problems that have arisen on that front um, that existed before, but maybe have gotten worse during this pandemic? Well, it's a cascading effect of a pandemic. First and foremost, it obviously uh, caused a uh, disruption in the normal supply chain. Normally, food would go to food service organizations, McDonald's, uh, restaurants, uh, schools, uh, institutional purchasers of food. Uh, when those shut down, uh, when kids were let out of school, uh, the question was, uh, why didn't we just simply convert from delivering it to McDonald's to delivering it to a Feeding America site or a local food bank? Well. The reality is the system wasn't set up to do that particularly well. It was from a regional standpoint or a local disaster standpoint, if a hurricane hit or a flood or something of that sort, but this was a national situation. Uh, so what we had was that initial disruption. Then when food was uh, delivered, oftentimes the food banks found themselves unable to store adequately or to refrigerate properly uh, the, the uh, food that was being donated. So that caused an issue. Uh, so then there was the pictures of people dumping food and destroying food, uh, farmers uh, dumping milk. People got concerned about that. Then there was a run on, this, on the retail uh, stores, which made it difficult for Feeding America, which normally gets a lot of its donated uh, food from retail stores, not in a position to donate because there wasn't anything left. So what are the communities or the sec segments of the population that are hardest hit by that? And are there particular challenges then with getting food to them in particular? Yes. So let's start with children. Um, before this pandemic, about 23 million children in the United States relied upon free or reduced meals. For many of those children, that meal that they received at school was the only consistent way that they received the the uh, the nourishment that they needed 
uh, for their growing bodies. So when the schools closed, with that came a significant challenge for kids around the country. In addition to that, we have certain communities that have been hidden in plain sight with these significant, really significant challenges. And among those communities would be communities of color. So we know that there have been access challenges for communities of color. We know that as one example, African-Americans make up about 12% of the U.S. population, but make up about 22% of the people who face food insecurity prior to the pandemic. Uh, the Latinx community makes up about 17% of the U.S. population, but makes up more like 24% of people who are food insecure before the pandemic. If I had to, to, uh, to name four groups, if you will, it would be children, it would definitely be communities of color, it would be rural communities, and it would be seniors. Governor Vilsack, so how do we address this from a policy perspective, not just to sort of plug this temporary crisis that we have, hopefully temporary crisis that we have, but also just to improve food security in the U.S. in a more sustained and long-term basis? Well, there's, uh, I think, a couple of things that need to be done. First and foremost, the SNAP benefit, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, people often refer to it as food stamps. That benefit, uh, the calculation of that benefit needs to be changed and increased. Uh, it needs to certainly be increased now in the face of the pandemic, but frankly, uh, it has been underfunding uh, families for far too long and it needs to be adjusted. Secondly, I really do think that Congress should figure out a way to provide resources to food banks, to Feeding America, so that the infrastructure uh, can be more resilient, the, the capacity for refrigeration, uh, cold storage, et cetera, be expanded so that in the event we have another pandemic, we're in a position to be able to store a, a number of these perishable items that in the past have been destroyed. I think it's also necessary to continue giving the USDA the flexibility to use the Commodity Credit Corporation to purchase surplus products. I will just add one data point. As great as our network of food banks uh, is, I mean, we have provided just since this pandemic started, we provided almost 2 billion meals between March and June. I mean, that's absolutely extraordinary. But the gap is another 8 billion. And we simply do not have the infrastructure or the wherewithal to do it. So these policy considerations are absolutely essential. And for every meal we can provide at, at our best inside of the charitable food system, that SNAP program can provide nine. Thank you so much to you both, Claire Bevan, <laughs> the CEO of Feeding America, and Tom Vilsack, the CEO of the Dairy Export Council and former Agriculture Secretary. Thank you so much. Cruise ship companies have virtually no revenue coming in. Basically, right now, they are in full-on survival mode. It's it's very much unknown what will happen with uh, airlines in the future, what the demand will really be. And the rebound in the travel industry is being threatened right now as we see coronavirus cases spiking across the country. Carnival Royal Caribbean and Norwegian have been hit hard, not surprisingly, by the coronavirus. back to Yahoo Finance's All Market Summit Extra Road to Recovery. I'm Brian Sazi. Joining me now is Carnival Corp CEO Arnold Donald. Arnold, always uh, always good to speak with you. Thanks for taking some time today. Uh, listen, you and I talked back in May, and, and the quote for me that you left me with, Carnival, you are fighting for the survival of your company. What's that fight look like since we last talked? Well, Brian, first of all, good to be with you. I'm a little envious from the previous interview. Uh, they're on the beach, you know, so uh, Tough life. That's, that, that's getting close to the water. So we, we like that. But anyway, it's good to be with you. Um, 
Yeah, we at that time we were fighting for survival, and obviously the whole travel and tourism industry has been, you know, devastated by uh, the reactions to COVID nineteen globally. Having said that, um, we've done the things we needed to do. I'm so proud of our people. I'm so grateful to our guests who have reached out with just you know heart pouring their hearts out to our people and support you know for our, our crew, for our shoreside people, and for the brands they love, and all of our travel agent partners um, who are struggling through all this with us. But we've been successful. We've been able to raise capital to give us a nice runway, um, even if we have an extended pause with no revenue. Uh, we've done a number of things in terms of getting our crew home. We've had to repatriate. Uh, we've repatriated almost 80,000 crew members with a thousand or two left over the past few months. And that was a daunting task because borders were closed, um, evolving restrictions and regulations as it happened, no flights available. Even when we had charters, sometimes we had crew on a charter and at the last minute the country would close its border or whatever and we'd have to reevaluate the whole thing. But we were able to repatriate nearly 80,000 crew uh, and get them home safely. And uh, we're marching now through the pause uh, to get geared up, and we're excited. There's an opportunity, it looks like, we'll be able to cruise starting in Germany in August. Um, so that's a positive sign. It's a little bitty step. Uh, it's our AIDA brand, uh, maybe three shifts, um, cruises to nowhere, out to the sea for three or four days, and then back to a drivable port um, in, in Germany. And then so we're, we're crossing the bridges and dotting the I's and crossing the T's and doing what we need to do. I definitely want to touch upon Europe and then return to sailing there. But walk us through some of the steps you have taken to save the company. A lot of big numbers that have been, uh, no pun intended, floating around. What exactly have you done? <laughs> well, again, first of all, um, first of all, always our highest responsibility and therefore our top priorities always are compliance, environmental protection, and the health, safety, and well-being of our guests, of our crew, and of the people and the places we touch. And, and those are always our top responsibilities. So on that front, we had to get guests home, over 260,000 of them. Uh, we had to get our crew, as I mentioned previously. We had to get them home. Uh, and, and now we have to maintain our ships with minimum manning. But I uh, have to do that in a manner where, of course, we're honoring our obligations and responsibilities with regards to compliance and environmental protection. So minimum manning of ships. We've had to get rid of some assets. You know, those ships are expensive to maintain. A number of ships were less efficient. Uh, in a few years, they probably would have been out of service anyway. But right now, there's no opportunity for them to generate revenue. So we've gotten rid of or plan to get rid of um, over 13, uh, 13 ships so far, uh, which we announced in the last earnings call. And um, so we had, we've had to do that. And we had to raise capital. So um, we've done multiple raises, senior secured debt, convertibles, common equity, second lien debt, um, commercial paper, and, um, and continue to work on delaying, uh, you know, deferring uh, maturities, uh, especially on new bills, delaying new bill ships. It's been a tremendous amount of work uh, that's gone on. And um, it's amazing how people have been able to do most of this virtually, uh, including the raising of you know, nearly $12 billion in capital. Uh, and so it's just an amazing thing to see everybody come together and pull together and, and do what we needed to do. Arl, part of uh, sailing down the road to recovery is part of our theme uh, for this conference. Uh, is the return to sailing, have you had any serious discussions with the CDC? They came out recently and they extended their <clears throat> no sale order from July 24th to September 30th. 
Uh, so when does the U.S. start up again? And you mentioned Germany. What about Italy and some of those other European territories? Well, as you mentioned, the CDC did issue a no-sale order. Um, the industry had previously volunteered um, through pretty much the same time period to continue to pause with operations here in the U.S. Uh, we all stand together, um, uh, not just our, our cruise industry, but all of us stand together to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. So to predict when it would be appropriate, you have to look at COVID-19 and society at large. So when society is comfortable socially gathering, um, and in doing so, uh, you're not seeing surges in hospitalizations or whatever related to COVID-19. Uh, when, when, when you're at that point, you can begin to think about, you know, true social gathering, and then you can begin to think about cruise. When is that going to happen in the U.S.? I wish I had that crystal ball. Um, could it happen soon? Sure. You know, three months ago, two and a half months ago, who would have thought Germany would be looking at opening borders and starting cruising? Um, that, that wouldn't have been the case two months ago. But yet they are. Why? Because they're at a point right now where they have very low community spread. So they have mitigation of spread in Germany, uh, lower incidences. Um, they have plenty of hospital capacity and so on and are not seeing massive surges in hospitalizations or anything. And they feel comfortable uh, that there are protocols that they have in place in society in general uh, that allow them to, to return to some sort of, of normal. And so we'll see how that plays out. It's just the beginning. Uh, for us, our priority is public health. So we're going to operate in the interest of public health in Germany, where the incident is low. We got a number of protocols that we worked out with the German government to ensure that um, we are as safe, if not safer, than similar type of social activities shoreside. We would do the same here in the U.S. Italy has been looking at it, um, as has Spain. Uh, those conversations have been going strong, too. As you know, Brian, the virus moved from east to west. And so some of those companies had surges, countries had surges uh, before the U.S. did. So we'll see how it all plays out. But there's so much yet to learn, you know, still and understand about COVID-19. And that's why, if I can add one more comment, that's why we're having, in conjunction with the World Travel and Tourism Council, a COVID Science Summit. And you can go to it, COVIDSciencesummit.com, July 28, made up of... Um, well, world-renowned panelists, medical experts, and scientists from around the world who are going to talk about the science of COVID, everything from uh, transmission, epidemiology, detection, prevention, therapies, vaccines, and, and how to live with it today. And so uh, everyone's invited. It's no charge. It's a virtual. Um, we've got thousands of people already signed up, and we invite everyone. And if you want to sign up, this once again, COVIDSciencesummit.com, Carnival Corporation and World Travel and Tourism Council together. All right, we'll have to leave it there for now. Carnival Corp CEO Arnold Dahl, always good to speak with you and good luck down the path uh, on the road to recovery. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Brian. So Julie, as I just said, you are working around the world. You work with CEOs everywhere. U.S. CEOs right now are confronting the pandemic, an economic crisis, a long overdue racial reckoning. Are they more or less optimistic than their counterparts in the rest of the world? What are you hearing? Jen, well, first of all, thanks for having me today. You know, I think uh, it, it's interesting. I, I actually don't think they're more or less optimistic because uh, actually across the world, there's a recognition that what the US is facing, either their countries 
going to face or is already facing. And that's true on both fronts with the pandemic and the spikes we're seeing today uh, with respect to the coronavirus. But it's also true with respect to the need to fight racism. And one of the things that uh, when we as a company went out and made some very clear goals with respect to fighting racism and creating more economic opportunity, my global management team was very clear that they wanted these goals to be ones that they did in their own country's context because racism or we have a very unique um, and terrible history here in the U.S. and so much to do, uh, it is, is an issue that is faced in many countries around the world. Um, and I do want to dive more into uh, many of the um, issues and, and letters that you've actually written yourself uh, dealing with many of these issues. But before we do, I just I want to get at this idea that something different is going on in the U.S. I mean, President Trump today said that the coronavirus pandemic is probably going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, we had a poll out this summer from the European Council on Foreign Relations that showed that in almost every country surveyed, there is actually an increasingly negative perception of the U.S. So, you know, I, it seems like there is something different happening in this country. And for our audience, I'm really curious about what the impact, if you see that, could be on cross-border business. Or do you really not see that there, there is uh, a difference in what companies are dealing with here? Well, I think I, I, let's look at it at two levels. So first of all, I mean, there's no doubt about it that what we're, we do not have the crisis, the, um, the health crisis yet under control, and we're seeing that, right? Uh, but the conversations I've had as recently as earlier this week with some of our, uh, the clients of our uh, European CEOs is that they're concerned that, you know, for example, as they go into the holiday season, that they may see the very same spikes. And so while certainly there's, you know, differences and how things have been handled and whether things are, um, you know, under control now, and we're certainly seeing with the case by, uh, cases, I guess what I would say is most of our CEO clients are actually very cautious about what, for example, is gonna be the story in September after the European holidays. And the other thing um, that, you know, what I'm seeing as a universal theme is that as important as it is today, and it's critical that we address the health crisis, and let's face it, every business is now a health business. What we're also seeing broadly across the world are CEOs moving from, how do we get a handle on managing the health crisis to, what are the strategic decisions we now need to make? Because this is gonna be a crisis no matter where you are in the world, it is not going to end until there's a vaccine or a better treatment. And so how do I actually now pivot to growth? How do I build my business differently? And I will tell you, there's no more optimism and, and, and a, a, you know, a, a different view of the criticality of the strategic decision-making that now faces you, whether you're in, you know, Japan or Europe, China or the US, uh, it is a common theme. And that's just the reality of what businesses are facing today as they look at the length of this crisis. Uh, let's get back to talking about some of the race uh, issues that we're dealing with specifically in this country. And you work with three quarters of the Fortune Global 500. And I'm going, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of those countries wrote a letter or put out statements uh, following the murder of George Floyd. What are they doing now? What are you seeing companies do um, that is going to hold them accountable in the next few years? 
You know, it's a great question, and it's actually a question that's being uh, very much focused on, and that's why I'm very optimistic that there is a moment of change. Uh, so I'm a member of the Business Roundtable, and I sit on the board there, and the Business Roundtable has formed a committee, and that's about the two, I'd say 200 CEOs uh, across the U.S., and uh, not only is this committee focused on what we can do in our communities, but there's a very clear focus on what we need to do at our companies. And so things like making sure that uh, people are setting goals, things like uh, data collection, uh, and you know, what actually has to be different in terms of the environment at work with measurable progress, those are the things that are being discussed, best practices are being shared. You know, we've been transparent with our numbers since 2015. We've set internal goals since 2015 and we've seen progress. It's not been fast enough, but we know that that works. And I'm so encouraged by the level of dialogue and commitment to real change and treating this like a business priority uh, with setting priorities, measuring progress and holding leaders accountable inside their own companies, um, and not and and in addition to that, to doing more in our communities. And I've I've read your letter that's on LinkedIn and some of the, the transparency that you talk about in there as well. It's worth a read if uh, people haven't seen it. But as we have this conversation, so much of it now is about systemic racism, and the system that we live in is a capitalist one. Are there conversations in the business world about what the role? is for the business community in fighting racism? Do you think that that they have a role and that they're up to it? Absolutely. Um, there, there are those conversations and what is very different today is that companies are saying we have a role in fighting racism, including advocating for the kinds of reform that are being debated uh, around you know, reform uh, in police departments and in the criminal justice system, and that we need to have a voice at the table advocating for these changes. It's a big shift. And it's something that at the Business Roundtable, we're really proud of saying, we know we have a role and we are going to uh, play that role and take that responsibility. Uh, thank you so much. It's always great to get a chance to talk with you, Accenture CEO, Julie Sweet. Thank you so much, Jen. Welcome back to Yahoo Finance's All Market Summit Extra Road to Recovery. I'm Shauna Smith. I want to bring in our next guest. We have Mary Mack, Senior Executive Vice President and CEO of Consumer and Small Business Banking at Wells Fargo. And Mary, I, when we talk about the coronavirus uh, impact that it's having on the economy, the big banks, including Wells Fargo, giving us a glimpse of that this past week with their earnings reports. And I want to get your thoughts on this because banks have this unrivaled visibility into the health of consumers and of businesses. So give us a sense of what you're seeing and what you're hearing from your consumers and your small business clients. Well, uh, thanks, Sean. I'm delighted to be here. So thank you for having me. And yeah, we're hearing from a lot of customers who, um, who need help, who need access to funds through the payroll protection program, who need um, uh, for their small businesses, who need help with forbearance, and, and we're working with all of them. Uh, we're also hearing from customers whose uh, economies, local economies, have been opening back up, and they want access to um, to cash, and they're using their debit cards more. So it's really a mix based on where you are in the country. 
So when you take all of that into account, what, what is your economic forecast at this time? Because the timing of the recovery, it's very hard to gauge at this point as we see the number of cases continuing to rise across the country. So when do you expect we'll see a recovery? And then what are you expecting just in terms of spending trends for the second half of the year? So uh, it is a little hard to predict. And we have recently, for instance, um, taken down a bit our expectations for the third quarter, given some of the outbreaks we're seeing in different parts of the country. So probably it'll be it'll be a better quarter, but probably not uh, as um, as much recovery as we might have expected in um, uh, maybe even just a few weeks ago. Customers are getting out a little bit more. They're starting to use their credit cards a bit more, their debit cards a lot more but maybe not as many times. The spend, for instance, on debit is actually up a bit from uh, a year ago, but they're not going as many places to spend. So a little bit, you know, some recovery in, in, um, in areas that were hardest hit like entertainment or um, uh, uh, other things like that, but still, still down from last year. Mary, I want to shift the conversation just a little bit and get your perspective on you're in a very unique position or a unique position, I should say, as one of the few senior executives still with Wells Fargo today that saw the bank to what had been a very challenging time. So I'm curious just to get your thoughts about when it comes to the consumer and to the small business banking division, just what you have done and what you think still needs to be done to win back that consumer trust. So we've done a lot over the last four years, but as you uh uh, recognize we have more to do. We've made a lot of changes in the way we serve customers and our branches. We have changed our um, our programs that our branch employees uh, operate off of in terms of their expectations, their incentives, et cetera. And that has translated through to the customer experience. We're measuring customer experience much more robustly than we have in the past. And we're taking that feedback in on a regular basis and making changes based on what our customers tell us. So again, we have more work to do, but we're delighted with the progress we're making and we're bringing new talent to the company that's helping us accelerate our transformation. Yeah, Mary, going off of that, uh, winning back consumer trust, and then also just the importance of fostering a positive company culture. And I'm curious uh, just about the recent announcement that we got from Wells Fargo, planning to cut around $10 billion in expenses this year. And then, of course, the thought process is, is that when you announce cost cuts, it could potentially involve layoffs. So when you talk about the importance of culture, I guess, how do you do this while ensuring the culture within the bank stays strong? Well, I think a big part of it, Shauna, honestly, is to be honestly is to be really transparent with our employees. That was a big part of Charlie's message and talking about it as we're developing plans, and we'll involve employees and customer feedback in the programs that we establish and the changes that we make. So we have had a uh, process over the last four years to follow our customers and what our customers want from us and need from us. And that sort of transparency and visibility has served us well and will continue to. And Mary, when we, uh, I want to get to a, a very important initiative that Wells Fargo is doing, talking about giving back. Wells has helped provide food to people and families in need in the past and taking into account the economic hardship that we have seen that so many Americans are enduring because of this coronavirus pandemic. I understand Wells Fargo has an upcoming announcement on food security later this week. So what can you tell us about Wells Fargo's initiative? 
So we have um, committed and been very vocal about our commitment to um, housing instability and very closely related is food insecurity. And what we wanted to do was use our, one of our most important resources, which are our branch locations that are in um, states across the country. And we will go into 20 or more of the hardest hit communities and use our real estate to set up uh, food banks, drive up food banks. We'll distribute over 50 million meals to customers and uh, community uh, members that are in need in those various communities. We're really excited about it. It's a way, as you mentioned, we have done it over the holidays in the past and use our branches for um, uh, collection, food collection sites that we could distribute. In this case, we'll actually distribute meals in our parking lots for uh, folks that are in need in those communities. And we'll announce that later this week uh, and we're really excited about the um, ability to lean into that very related issue to um, housing insecurity. Yeah, very important, especially at this time. Mary Mack, Senior Executive Vice President and CEO of Consumer and Small Business Banking at Wells Fargo. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Great. Thanks for having me, Shauna. Uh, Cynthia, I want to start by talking about how the pandemic has prompted you to rethink how you operate things over at Adobe, because you're a global company. You've got offices all around the world. How have you had to pivot as a result of not just local restrictions, but international border closures? So that's a great question. So yes, we have had to pivot. Um, we had to pivot to work from home. Um, you know, one of the things I, I think I'd like to start in that talking about is being prepared. At Adobe, we take being prepared for different activities very seriously because we want our customers to have the highest level of service, you know, as well as the, our employees having a great experience. And I have past experience with SARS when I was CIO at a shipping company. And at that time in 2004, we had a, actually struggled to enable a group of remote workers. So last year during the California fires, I said, hey, you know, what if our, what if our headquarters, you know, was impacted? Uh, what if team members that we, you know, required to come to the office for support couldn't get there? How would we run and support the business? So you know, we created a preparedness plan and um, we didn't have to use it, which was great. But this year I had a, a trip to India and you know, it felt, coming back, it felt again like SARS. So I got with my team, we put the preparedness plan, we dusted it off and we gave them some scenarios. I gave them some scenarios and said, you know, what if this office had to shut down because of you know, what's going on in China and different scenarios. And you know, it ended up we found different um, components, different elements that needed to be, you know, changed a little bit. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, over a week, and we made a decision to, you know, to you know, click our entire workforce over to you know work from home. And some elements did change. I mean, we had a mentality that you know, if anything happened in the U.S., you know, we could automatically click over and you know have India cover us, right? But in this case, you know, India was in the same situation. So we had to you know, pivot and look at how we backed up different roles and responsibilities differently. Uh, Ravi, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Adobe, among a number of tech companies that have pivoted to work from home, and we've already heard from the likes of Facebook and Twitter who say, this is a permanent shift that is happening right now. So the question then is, what's the fundamental shift that's likely to come from this in the labor market? And you've talked about this new equilibrium that could emerge on the other end. What does that look like? 
Okay, good. Thank you for having me on this program. Uh, Infosys, as you're aware, is a global tech uh, and digital consulting firm. So we have 250,000 employees across the globe. So we quickly pivoted to a hybrid world, as I call it, because uh, as I spoke about in one of my posts, uh, we're going to go through a four-phase equilibrium. Some of the countries are in the first phase. There is a second phase, which is before the virus uh, really gets uh, protected by a, by a vaccine where you go back and forth and you go back and forth uh, on demand. And then there is a third phase where you get to an equilibrium where the hybrid working is going to be uh, a, a, a new normal, as they call it. And uh, many CIOs I've spoken to, many tech companies I've spoken to have told me that uh, maybe 50% of the workforce is never going to come back to work. And I would say there is a fourth phase, which is preparing for an unknown unknown. Uh, remember, the virus is actually a known unknown. We are going to prepare for an unknown unknown and therefore uh, create a virtualization on demand, a resilience on demand, uh, an infrastructure which will allow us to stretch the boundaries and make it uh, very seamless. Uh, coming to the labor market, I would say th there has been never a time before where enterprises are going to change on all three dimensions, mm -hmm. work, workplace, and workforce. Work is going to become very modular. Uh, workplaces are going to become very hybrid. And workforces are going to become people plus uh, gig because work is very modular. You could uh, take it across to different parts of the world, you could split it into small components. And um, with the advent of AI, I think workplaces are also going to become people plus machines plus uh, gig. So that's the broad context in which uh, the labor market is going to change. Uh, Ravi, let me pick up on that point. Um, Cynthia, you know, th there's inevitably going to be questions about the security risks that arise coming from all of this. You not only have staff in, um, you know, different offices now, but working from home as well, where, where they don't have the same type of secure infrastructure. Are there heightened vulnerabilities that could come from the, this push to work from home? So um, on the security front, I would say that, you know, security is always evolving and the, you know, you have to keep on top of your defensive game in order to you know make sure that that you have everything in place so you know in our case you know we use um adobe sanctioned devices with security i'll give you an example you know we've developed what we call a desktop as a service and you know when we when people want to use our software you know employees or interns uh, we do a scan so their equipment has to be clean so whenever anything connects to our network we have to make sure that the devices are clean and sanctioned. So yes, I would agree with you that there are increased vulnerabilities if you don't have the right security and defensive programs in place. Robbie, let's talk about where all of this digitization is likely to lead to. The fear of automation, the job losses that could come with it, that was something that we had talked about even before the pandemic, but now you've got millions of people who are unemployed worried that their skills just simply don't match sort of the future of where the labor force is going. How do you develop an infrastructure that leads to meaningful reskilling and sort of creates what you've called this chain of learning? Okay, cool. that's a great question. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, in the United States, 40 million people have lost jobs. 70% of the people who've lost jobs uh, do not have an undergrad degree. They either have a high school or an associate degree. 
I would believe this is an inflection point where we're going to move from degrees to skills. As the pandemic, uh, just right before the pandemic, the change was very gradual and you're going to now find this to be sudden. Uh, there was a shift to future jobs. There was a World Economic Forum report which spoke about 125 million jobs of the future being created, 75 million jobs of the past being taken away. So this is our opportunity. We have a choice to either reset back to the past or reset into the future. And if we decide to reset into the future, we need a radical reskilling or a chain of learning, as you called it. The radical reskilling you need starts from evaluation of skills to finding the pathways to online training to handholding and apprenticeship. And the reason why I call this a chain needed for radical reskilling is because some of our industries have got decimated, some of our work streams have got decimated. So the 40 million people who need jobs will have to pivot to jobs of the future and will have to pivot to different industries which are proof by recession. So if we really want to do that, you need to bring a consortium of sorts with these complementary players to come together to, uh, to deal with uh, reskilling. Unlike in the past recessions, reskilling was actually owned by individuals. Reskilling has to be owned by consortiums. I have to put one last point out here. You know, machines and AI being a mm -hmm. part of workplaces was always happening for the last few years. This pandemic is going to actually accelerate the embrace of machines and AI software into workplaces. So you are going to see a shift from people to people plus machines. Mm -hmm. And that shift is going to move the human endeavor to problem finding versus problem solving, which was which was always uh, the trait needed in workplaces. Yeah, no no question about many trends that have been accelerated. Ravi Kumar, president of Infosys, and Cynthia Stoddard, chief information officer of Adobe, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Yahoo Finance's All Market Summit Extra Road to Recovery. I'm Stabil Marcellus. Our next guest is a stand-up comedian turned media mogul. Byron Allen is the founder and CEO of the Allen Media Group, which owns nearly a dozen cable networks, including the Weather Channel, about a dozen local television stations, and produces more than 60 syndicated TV shows and hours thousands of hours of content. Byron, let's first talk about what it takes to pull off a multi-billion dollar deal in the media industry. Your $8.5 billion all-cash bid for TV station owner Tegna was made public in March. Are you any closer to acquiring those 62 television stations? You know, we, we have, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate that. We have a great deal of interest in Big Four Network affiliates. Uh, Big Four Network affiliates, that's a terrific business. Last year in 2019, 92 of the top 100 television shows came off of Big Four Network affiliates, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, because we have NFL football and college football and the Oscars and the Emmys, the Grammys, and just phenomenal content. This is uh, also important uh, in this pandemic world because uh, we have local news and local news is very important. And on the television stations that we own, some of them are doing 50, 60, 70 shares in terms of the audience watching our local news to get information on COVID-19. And we're more essential than ever today 
because of what's going on in this with this pandemic. So this is a phenomenal business. We are very much all in on Big Four Network affiliates, and we would love to own Tegna and other Big Four Network affiliate companies uh, out there. Well, you said that you plan to invest $10 billion over the next three years to acquire ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox television stations. But even the current media climate that we're in and the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on advertising, are local television stations still profitable? Yes, they're very profitable. And we have very good margins. Uh, we did take a bit of a dip in the uh, second quarter, as everybody, uh, you know, as we had shelter in place with local advertising, but it will come back. Uh, you have to have uh, advertising just to let people know you're open for business. So we expect, and we're already seeing you know, positive signs in the third quarter, and we expect the fourth quarter to also continue to head up. Uh, we know long run, it's a marathon, not a sprint. We're gonna be fine. Everybody's going to, going to need local news, weather and sports. Uh, that's just essential to who we are. And not only that, we have our big four network affiliates, but we also have a streaming service called Local Now. And Local Now is an app that's free and it provides local news, weather and sports, and it's on your mobile devices, so it's with you wherever you go. This is information that's just essential, and it's very much essential in a pandemic world. Let's talk about access to venture capital, because that's notoriously difficult for Black Americans. Yet you managed to raise $300 million to acquire the Weather Channel two years ago. How'd you pull that off? Great question. You know, I made it a point uh, to really get to know the capital markets and let the capital markets get to know me. And I went out and I spent quite a few years, you know, listen, the first 15 to 20 years of my business, I started my company from my dining room table in 93, so 27 years ago. And unfortunately, for the first 15 to 20 years, I did not have access to bank capital. Uh, I had to use factors, people who would take my receivables from Pepsi and Johnson and Johnson and Mac McDonald's and Procter and Gamble, and I couldn't wait 120 days or 90 days to be paid. They would pay me weekly. But the factors were charging me as much as 26, 27 percent. And I knew I wasn't going to survive paying that kind of an interest rate. So I made it a point to get to know folks who had capital. And uh, I met a gentleman who has a firm who manages a little over $100 billion. I called him up and I knew managing $100 billion, it's not easy to deploy that amount of capital and get it back and get it back with a return. I let him know I had an opportunity to buy the Weather Channel at a very attractive rate uh, price and he gave me the commitment in one day. So uh, he lent me $310 million out of his $100 billion fund. He gave me five years to pay it back. And I decided not to pay it back in five years. I decided to refinance and pay it back in five months. And in doing so, I had to pay a prepayment penalty, what's known as, what's known as make hold. I gave him close to a $30 million penalty for paying him so quickly. And that got out uh, uh, throughout Wall Street pretty quickly. And a number of bankers showed up at my door and I knew they would. And I purposely did that as a way of saying that if you put capital with me, not only will you get it back, you'll get it back with a great return. And that's why I said, here's your 310 million back plus a nearly $30 million thank you five months later. And Wall Street uh, rolled out the red carpet. And shortly after that, we were able to raise a little over a billion dollars to buy more television stations. And now we've, uh, we have circled about 10 billion to buy even more uh, media assets, not just TV stations.
That's definitely impressive. Uh, let's talk about the coverage of protests following the death of George Floyd. In your opinion, does mainstream media have a blind spot when it comes to covering issues of race and racism? Yeah, I do. I think there's a big a blind spot. And I think that's because at the end of the day, 99.9% uh, .9 of the media is going through the lens of white owners and white managers. I wrote an op-ed called uh, Black America Speaks, America Should Listen, What We Need to Do to Never Come Back Here Again. And I offered it to a number of newspapers to run it as an op-ed, and it was consistently rejected. And I knew that they would reject it, and that's why I went and bought 16 pages, because it was two pages uh, to, to print it out, 16 pages in eight different newspapers around the country. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, the Washington Post, I'm sorry, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and on and on. And I really wanted to talk to America in a way so that we can go to the next step and really take what we've learned from Martin Luther King, who taught us that there are two Americas. One America has access to education and opportunity and jobs and mentorship and capital that's not predatory, and the other America does not. And two Americas will not survive. Well, Dr. Martin Luther King shared these thoughts, these brilliant thoughts with us over half a century ago, and now we're watching it unfold. And what's happening is that we now have to become one America. We have to make sure that every American is positioned to succeed, that every American has access to an education that's free. Uh, every American has access to health care. You don't have to worry about health care because that's your God-given right. Every American has opportunity to success, for success, whether it's jobs or business or capital to buy a business or start a business. We have to position each and every American to succeed to its fullest because we have to compete as one nation, as one tribe, the American tribe, because we have a lot of emerging nations around the world who are doing a much better job of educating their, their citizens and getting their citizens engaged. So and Byron, this, 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 this brings me to this. Uh, what is your take on President Trump's criticism of the media and the coverage of the protests following the death of George Floyd? Well, listen, you know, uh, I think uh, President Trump is completely wrong. Uh, the, uh, you know, the media is, you know, President Trump, what he's not understanding is that he's nothing more than temporary hired help. He works for the American people. He answers to us. We don't answer to him. The media is there to keep the bosses informed, the American people. We are the boss. We run it. And so to criticize the, the, the media, the media doesn't have an incentive not to tell the truth and to be 110% transparent. So he's wrong. Uh, and it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's, it, you're, in a, you're in a bad place when someone's trying to control the narrative and tell you what you should, uh, what they want you to know. Uh, thank God we have the, the media or else I think we might all be drinking Lysol right now. <laughs> and we don't need to be drinking Lysol. Anthony, welcome. Great to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I'm trying to upgrade my Room Raider status, Andy, so I hope you don't mind the setting that we're in. Uh, I've been getting dished on Room Raider, so I'm hoping this will give me a little lift. But the stock market is a very narrow market. It's basically 15 stocks. Today, obviously, the tech stocks were slightly weaker. There was a small rotation. But these, no, these rotations, Andy, they never last. And so what's powering the market right now, 15 stocks, some are trading in infinite PE, some are trading at 150 times earnings. And, you know, I'm long enough in the tooth now, 32 years in the industry to know that this ends in tears.
no one's going to be able to predict when it ends. But when a pin goes into this stuff, there'll be 50, 60% declines. You can't have five, 50 times, I'm sorry, 150 times earnings and not see some kind of diminution in value as things multiple contract. Yeah, I mean, why do you think that's going to happen, though, Anthony? I mean, is it because the economy is not in great shape or COVID is worse than people think? Why do you suspect the market's going to go down from here? No, no, I, I'm not saying it's going to go down. It's going to rotate. Take a look at where the S&P was in January and the complexity of the S&P. Value has shifted into the FANG stocks plus Microsoft. The S&P now is up for the year. But value has come out of 485 stocks in the S&P and gravitated to 15. And so what I predict will happen is as the economy starts to improve and people feel more comfortable in earnings at Carnival and earnings at other companies in the Dow Jones industrials and in the, uh, the S&P 500, it'll rotate. And if you're at 150 multiple, even if you have really good fundamentals, uh, you can't you can't uh, you can't expect those names to stay there. And 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 I'll I'll bring you back to March of 2000, when the Nasdaq was at 5,000, and everybody was red hot for internet stocks. Yahoo was a hot ticket back then, as you will recall. And yet by March of 2000, a pin went into the Nasdaq. And we saw a 50% loss in value. Microsoft has traded down, in my memory, at least three times since its IPO. Somebody told me today it was six times. I have to do the research on it. But my point is, you can't have stocks rally to this extent at those valuations without expecting some loss. So, no, I like, I like the overall market. There's a water wall of liquidity in the market and the economy will improve once we get to a vaccine but i'm just worried about that sliver of stocks that's propelling the market right now yeah what about the hedge fund business anthony you know a little bit about that you're in it um they had a great month in april but questions about it going forward here hurting about outflows and the like yeah, well, listen, uh, we, we, we had a difficult March, as you know. I talked about it on, on Yahoo. We've had a 14-week period of time where we've had about a 9% recovery. Our best month since the COVID-19 crisis was June, where we were up 3.7%. So the hedge fund industry is having a small renaissance right now uh, because of the rotation that's going on in the overall market. And if you look at what happened in March, uh, companies like Bridgewater, companies like Skybridge had very difficult months. Canyon had a difficult month. So a result of which you're now seeing a residual reversal. And so, yes, money is flowing out of the hedge funds. The passive active debate has been won by the passive investment community. Uh, it's 12 years of them winning that debate. And so we could then write an obituary of the hedge funds. But you and I both know, uh, being on Wall Street for as long as we are on Wall Street, that we both think that we're in the investment business, but a lot of times we're in the fashion industry where things come in and out of favor. And if you see some type of normalization in the market, you will see a return to active investing versus passive. So I'm always cautioning people, 
leave yourself in a balanced portfolio, have at least 5 to 7% exposure to hedge funds, companies like Skybridge, Point72, Bridgewater, et cetera. I want to jump into uh, some politics here quickly. We saw that former Ohio Governor John Kasich said he's going to speak to the Democratic uh, Convention, maybe some Republican jumping ship here. What does this mean as we head towards November, Anthony? Well, I think many Republicans feel this is now battle for the democracy. So this is the biggest schism in the Republican Party since the Jerry Ford, Ronald Reagan schism in 1976. And so a good portion of Republicans, myself included, have broken away from the president and are would choose Joe Biden over President Trump. Many Republicans feel that Joe Biden is actually more of a Republican than President Trump if you really study his record and you study Trumpism. And so I think it's going to be a very difficult election for the president. I referenced that to you in January before the COVID-19 crisis grew up. We were in Davos, Switzerland together. You asked me my opinion. I thought then that the president was going to lose the election. That was not the consensus by those global elites that you and I were trafficking in at that time. But it does seem like now that that's a likely outcome. And, and I think you've got a number of things going on right now in 2020, very different from 2016. And that's basically the schism in the party. And John Kasich, Governor Kasich represents that. And I'm very excited that he's going to be speaking at the DNC. Who should Joe Biden pick as his running mate, Anthony? Kamala Harris, Susan Weiss, Val Demings. There's a lot of people out there. And well, would you? I, 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 I like the other. I like the other Rice. I like I like Condoleezza Rice actually. All right, who do you think he's going to pick, and would you serve so in the I, administration? So, would I serve in the administration? Well, only if he promised me that I would serve for twelve days and not eleven. I'd have to get sort of a job guarantee, you know, the way you guys get your long-term media contract. So I would serve, but I got to at least serve for 12 days, not 11. Uh, but in this following order is what I think is going to happen. It's Kamala Harris, possibly Susan Rice. And then I think Val Demings would be third. Not that she's not incredibly talented and very competent, but I just think that she is not as well vetted on the national stage as the other two represent. So, and, and her time will come, in my opinion. I think she's an incredibly talented person. Anthony, you mentioned to me earlier that this is the third year anniversary of you having one and only press conference as White House Communications yes. Director today. Yes, and I la- yes, I lasted one Scaramucci, which is now 11 days, sort of the Kanye West of uh, press secretaries or communications directors. But look, I'm out on the beach today. Uh, this is the uh, take your dad to play day as opposed to taking a kid to work. So I've been doing my work from here. I hope you guys don't mind. Uh, but it's a beautiful setting out here in Southampton. And uh, here, if you don't mind, I'm going to turn the camera. Yeah, well, life is a beach Not- for you. I want to ask you about a tweet that you put out there today. It had to do with uh, the yeah. president being concerned about getting COVID and getting tested a lot. And you told yeah. a story about uh, a part of your anatomy. Yeah, well, I, I was uh, experiencing a dry throat on Air Force One, and the president's a very famous germaphobe, and so he's pressing buttons in the cabin there. Ronnie shows up, and you know, you know the president said, hey, something's wrong with Anthony, go fix him. Uh, Ronnie looked in my mouth and insisted on giving me a penicillin shot in my buttocks. So when you think about humanity, when you think about your mortality, 
reality. There I was on Air Force One with my trousers down, uh, taking a penicillin shot. And so I was just, you know, riffing a little bit this morning. I thought that was funny. People say that the president's being tested two or three times. I absolutely believe that. Uh, Listen, you know, my issues with the president are not personal. I always got along with him in those settings. Uh, He's a garrulous guy. He can be be very charming. But, man, is he a germaphobe. Do not lick your fingers and go to touch something on his desk, like to turn pages. He he flips out about stuff like that. Ask Smith Mulvaney. Anthony, I think we're going to have to leave it at that in part because I don't think we can go anywhere from here. Welcome to our guest, Brian Chesky, who is the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. Brian, nice to see you. Oh, thank you, Andy. Nice to see you. So I guess let's just take a big swing question first. Um, What was it like when coronavirus started to unfold and you started realizing the impact on the company and the business. You know, I never, um, we started the company over a decade ago and I thought that was the craziest experience in my professional life. And for many years I said, I'll probably never experience something as crazy as starting Airbnb. And in March, I think we experienced that. We spent 12 years building our business and within six weeks lost about 80% of it. And when the business, drops that quickly, not only do you, there's this feeling of, of losing much of what you've created, but things start breaking, right? Like suddenly um, guests wanted more than a billion dollars of refunds. And, you know, like, you, know, you can't really plan for pandemic related refunds because people are counting on that money to pay their rent or pay their mortgage. And so it just kind of felt like you're, you know, like on a ship and you just get sideswiped. And it was, it was a, uh, it, it was it was incredibly intense. It felt like everything was breaking at once. So where do things stand right now? And maybe even more important, how do you even begin to manage things going forward? Yeah, well, the thing uh, is really good to, to point out is that Airbnb is in 190 or so countries. Yeah. And so we, 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 um, we, we kind of get to see the experiment of different countries' approaches play out because we're also very large see in Italy. And Italy also had a huge surge around the same time United States did. And now Italy has, it seems like, you know, it's a little different place. And what we're seeing in the United States is that United States had a definite uh, like initial recovery. And it's now, I think, uh, you know, we're going to expect it to slow down. Um, But one of the things we're seeing is a totally different way that people are traveling. Before COVID, people traveled a lot for business. They got on airplanes. They crossed borders and they went to big cities. And in those cities, they stayed in these central hotel districts. And now a whole bunch of things are happening. People are saying they do want to get out of the house, regardless what country they're in. They do have this need to get out of their house, but they aren't right now super comfortable getting on airplanes. They want to get on cars and they want to travel not more than 300 miles away or 200 miles, a tank of gas. They're going for leisure. They're going to not big cities. They're going rural. They want to get out stores. They want to discover the outdoor communities. And most of all, they're like looking to stay in homes. And so that has been a surprise to us. Uh, Maybe the extent that we've seen demand come back. What I mean by that is um, the last few weeks, we've seen volumes of business that are actually the same size volume as a year ago. When um, it was April, even beginning of May, 
I could have never, ever imagined that it would have been that resilient. And this may be pent up demand. My, um, I think you're seeing a little bit of it. I think one of the things you're seeing is people are sheltering in place in other homes. So they're basically saying work from home is now work from any home. And maybe I want to get a different home on an Airbnb. So they're getting longer term stays. Do you think that COVID has changed the competitive landscape, giving either them or you more of an advantage? Travel is changed forever. The world of travel as we knew it in January is never coming back. It's never coming back. I feel very confident about that. What I'm not totally sure about is what is going to come back. And that's just guessing the future. But it's pretty easy to know once like hundreds of millions of people experience Zoom and they realize they don't need to travel for work, like people will travel for work again, just not everyone. Some people are going to realize now they can do this thing. A whole bunch of people who thought they had to get on an airplane and go to a, a like a city and stay in a central district realizes, well, there's 400 national parks in the United States and I live near one, and maybe I should go see a natural park. And suddenly you can't like undo all this knowledge. Yeah. I wanna ask you about social and racial justice, um, the social protests. First of all, have you guys done enough at Airbnb? I mean, you made some donations, but do you need to have more diversity at your company? I, 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 I'm not sure if you were to ask 100 CEOs, have you done enough on uh, racial diversity if anyone would feel comfortable saying yes, because I don't, I don't know who has done enough. Airbnb has not done enough. We need to do more. Um, I am proud of the work we've done, but I kind of think we're all living through this history where we're all reliving the last year, five years, 10 years, and ask, what if I did more sooner? Every single one of us is now saying that. And I think there's a lesson there that we're probably five years from now gonna say that about this moment now. I think internally we need to do more. Um, you know, we and we had a little bit of a setback um, with the layoffs because we disproportionately laid off non-technical people, non-engineers, and so we laid off fewer um, engineers than non-engineers. Um, well, engineers are there are not many black engineers, and so our diversity was hit by disproportionately laying off non-engineers, and so we have a lot more ground to make. Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Yahoo Finance's All Market Summit Extra, Road to Recovery. I'm Angelique Kimlani, healthcare reporter. I've been following the outbreak of this coronavirus and the global pandemic that has upended economies across the world. Joining me now is the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams. Really glad to be here with you. I know that it's a tough time out there with so much going on with the mask debate, especially as we're seeing so many cases uh, rise across the U.S. and continuing to do so. Could you tell us about what the logic is um, and what the thinking is at the federal level about not requiring a mask mandate? Well, I, I appreciate you asking that because there is so much focus on whether or not we should force people to do something, and I think not enough focus on uh, the need to educate people about why they should do it. Uh, strictly from a public health, motivational, and behavior change perspective, it's important to know that we don't have much luck when it comes to trying to force people to do something if we don't couple that with the, the why. We know that, that if you force people to do it, they'll do it when you're watching, um, but then when you, when you aren't watching, they'll stop doing it. We also know that shame doesn't work, and that's true for opioids, that's true for uh, for STDs, that's true for HIV testing. 
what I'm focused on as Surgeon General is helping people understand a couple of things. Number one, COVID-19 uh, has really um, humbled us in terms of its asymptomatic spread. Uh, really quickly, what that means is that previous diseases like COVID-19, uh, other coronaviruses, really weren't spread by people who didn't have symptoms. Uh, you knew if you were sick, and if you were sick, then you were one of those people who was more likely to spread the disease. But up to 50% in many cases of people who are spreading COVID uh, are spreading it before they have symptoms and without ever even knowing they have it. And that's why our recommendations change to tell people to wear masks or face coverings. Uh, the other important thing I want people to know is that masks actually don't inhibit your freedom. They don't inhibit your choice. They enable freedom and enable more choices because we know that if we can get 90% of people to wear face coverings and get people to practice at least six feet of social distancing from their neighbors and practice good hand hygiene, that we can reopen and that we can stay open and we can get back to schools, to worship, to college football in the fall, and to the other things that people want to do, you'll have more choices if you wear a face covering. There has been some debate and comparisons about, you know, seatbelt enforcement and other things like that. Uh, would you say that those are fair comparisons and that even if at the state level, there should be some level of enforcement? Well, I'm not opposed to, uh, to mandates at the state and the local level. We actually support local control and state control. Here's the concern when you talk about enforcement from a federal level. And this is a very practical concern. This isn't um, subjective. If the difference between a mandate and a guideline is, is enforcement. And from a federal perspective, we can send in federal troops, and we see that's not working very well in places like Oregon right now, and that there are also concerns about enforcement when you look at what's happened in the African-American community and people being uh, killed for very minor offenses. Uh, and we also could take away federal funding, which I think is a very tough thing to put on the table at a time when we're fighting a global uh, pandemic. And then there's civil penalties. Again, all of these things work best and become less necessary if implemented at the local level and coupled with education. And so again, not against a mandate, but really against doing things without making sure people understand why they're doing them and working with the local communities to make sure everyone understands that we all benefit when people wear face coverings. Dr. Adams, one of the things that you're really focused on is diversity and especially looking at how uh, the virus has been uh, disproportionately impacting certain communities. What has been done, at, whether at your office level or generally with the coronavirus task force, um, with addressing these? Because we've been hearing about them, but there hasn't really been any action. Well, we should be shocked by the statistics. Uh, Native American, Alaska Native, and Blacks five times the rate of hospitalizations, Hispanics four times the rate of hospitalizations. And we know that a disproportionate number of the 140,000 people who've died of COVID-19 in this country have been people of color. That should shock us, but it shouldn't surprise us. And what I mean there is we've known for over a century that people of color are disproportionately impacted by an array of diseases from cancer to heart disease, to diabetes and to substance use disorder. <clears throat> and really what COVID-19 has done is, uh, is sh uh, shown us those health disparities that have ex existed in communities of color uh, for all of my life and are, have impacted me and my own family personally. So you ask what the task force is doing. Uh, we're trying to, number one, improve data collection. And the CDC now collects data according to race and ethnicity. Uh, that wasn't happening before and still isn't happening 
with a number of other diseases because it involves a level of coordination that goes beyond the federal government. Again, it may start at the local corner. It may start at the local uh, hospital where a person is admitted and you need a busy nurse to write something by hand and to fax it in. We're looking at improving those processes to make it easier for people to do the right things. We're doing more research. The National Institute on Minority Health, which is a, a part of NIH, is doing research regarding how we can make testing more available in communities and, and making sure uh, we've got urgent research done to ensure the remedies that are available, like remdesivir, like steroids, like convalescent plasma, work as well and are equally available. And we're also working, and this is critically important for your viewers to understand, uh, we're working with communities to make sure they are participating in vaccine trials because uh, we want everyone to understand that vaccines are safe and effective, and we want people to feel confident that they're safe and effective in all communities so that we don't actually worsen disparities with a vaccine, which could happen if the people who are least affected get the vaccine and the people who are most affected from COVID-19 won't get the vaccine or aren't equally helped by it. My thanks to Dr. Jerome Adams, U.S. Surgeon General. It's been difficult for uh, for people who spend their days, uh, spend their lives um, invested in, uh, in this art form. And we're very physical people. I mean, we spend hours at a time partnering one another in very intimate environments. So to be just yanked out of that and not have that personal human connection, I think is a bit shocking um, emotionally, psychologically. Um, but, you know, logically, just like so many people in the world, you know, dancers have been furloughed. There's there's no way of, of making making money right now when the theaters are shut down. Part of my, my journey uh, during COVID has really been to try and lend my platform and my voice to be able to help dancers who are without jobs, who are struggling to keep food on the table, a roof over their head, um, through an initiative that I helped to start called Swans for Relief, um, to get funds out to different dancers from companies all over the world. So um, I think in the long run, that the dance world's gonna learn from this because we've never really been pushed to have a virtual presence. This is an opportunity for us to step back and take a look at all of these things that are very old and very traditional, but that we need to kind of reassess um, and revamp. And I think that our digital presence, this is the time that we need to be um, really venturing in and into those spaces and, and learning how to do it and how to change all of these restrictions that in the end are only hurting us. For me, it's the first time as uh, in my position that I feel like I'm truly being heard. And to me, that's a step. You know, this has been my life's work as a dancer, speaking about racism in the world and in ballet, speaking about the lack of diversity um, and to have, you know, my my company to have the ballet world listening and, and to have different panels and to, be able to speak about this in a way that I have before. But again, for the first time, people are really seeing it. And I think that that's what's different about this time is that I feel like we have true allies and people from other communities and races that we've not had before.